Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Hey, it's Kevin. This podcast episode's a little different. Uh, first, you're going to hear from Rebecca. She has an interview with Rabia Chaudhry. It's great. And then the crime writers are all going to come in and we're going to react to some of what Rabia had to say. Uh, so we're also going to talk about Going Clear, the HBO documentary about Scientology that all four of us have watched, and we just can't wait to weigh in on that. So if you haven't seen that, then you may want to just listen to this episode later or save that part for later on. So consider yourself spoiler warned. Also, this episode contains a bit more swearing than in previous editions. So, hey, there's that. Now, just a reminder, look, we don't have MailKimp or Stamps.com or any other sponsors for this podcast. Honestly, just producing these episodes just comes out of her own pocket. It costs Rebecca a couple hundred dollars that she could be spending on boots or whatever. Uh, we have thousands of people downloading each episode, and if... Each of you just kicked in like five bucks. Uh, we could do this for a couple of years. So uh, our website is crimewriterson.com, and you can use uh, PayPal uh, even if you're destitute. Don't care. But, uh, you know, you can make it up to us by maybe leaving a good review for the podcast on iTunes, especially if you do like it. Uh, and you also can support us by following us on Twitter, and uh, we'll throw out our handles at the end of the podcast. But, you know, cash is king. All right, so I guess that's it. Enjoy the show. Hello. Hey, Robbie. It's Rebecca Lavoie. How are you? Good. How are you, Rebecca? I'm fine. You have a really good um, cell phone line. Um, sometimes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, re- it's, it's really nice to talk to you. Do you have like 15 minutes or so? Sure. Sure. That's fine. Okay. I really appreciate it. I, I honestly can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And- So I kind of see you as a crusader on so many fronts. You are, you know, I think in many ways a feminist crusader. You're sort of a crusader for the Muslim community. You are obviously a crusader for Adnan. And then you're also a lawyer sort of working for people who need help. Are you exhausted? Do you ever get tired of of just fighting all the time? Oh, (laughs) I mean, I think, um, you know, some people are just bitten with like the activist bug. And I always kind of been like that. And for folks like that, um, yeah, you get burned out once in a while, but if you spend a day watching Netflix, you're like, I've just wasted my life. So <laughs> <laughs> it's you, I, and I, I know a lot of people like that. I, like a lot of my friends and people close to me are kind of driven the same way. Um, and it's, I just think it's a personality type. Um, it's what I actually enjoy doing. I enjoy reading meaningful stuff and writing things that are important and thinking about things that are. I think important. I also like Netflix, so that's okay too. But what do you watch on um, Netflix? I'm just curious. I love like these uh, mysteries from the UK, like uh, Broadchurch and um, The Fall and Wallander. Um, I don't know if they're a little bit obscure, but 
Um, they're so good. They're really good. Um, I House of Cards is like my really guilty, I feel dirty afterwards pleasure. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> you're I alone there. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. It's interesting to know your pop culture sensibility is right in line with I think where I imagined it would be, which is it's always a relief. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned on the um, the Reddit AMA that Adnan had heard about his appeal uh, through the media. Is that right? On the news that night, yeah. Okay, so he's sort of living in a, a bubble still. Is that by choice, or is it because that's just what he has access to, or is it some combination of, of that? Yeah, I mean, Supermax is kind of a bubble, um, and he's in a Supermax, so it's really by um, no choice at all. He doesn't have access to a lot of stuff, and, you know, it's also, you, his lawyer just can't pick up the phone and make a phone call. Um, we have to wait for Adnan to call us, basically. You can schedule calls, but it's really hard to do, and... It, you know, it, it can take a few days before you can actually get through. So, yeah, he like that evening, he just heard about it in the news. Did he immediately pick up the phone and call you after that? No, he also can't just call whenever he wants. There are certain hours he can call mm-hmm. um, and certain days. I think it was filed on a Monday. He makes a lot of his calls on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So let's talk about the appeal for a second. So the appeal uh, is kind of going forward. And can you just run me through what the timing is on that? When is a ruling on the pl- on the appeal expected? And do you have a best guess as to the outcome, or do you still feel like it could be one of many outcomes? The state's response brief has to still be filed um, this month. I know I, I think it's April 3rd. I can't remember exactly what the deadline is. And then the hearing is early June. Um, we don't know exactly what date it's on, but the court has this early June. There might be a possibility the state asks for a um, continuance. We don't want to. And then the the court can take as long as it wants to rule. That's the thing. I mean, it could rule quickly. It could take over a year. I mean, the post-conviction ruling came more than, like, almost 18 months after the hearing. So that's really kind of the tricky part. We don't have no idea when the, the court will rule. What I do anticipate, though, is whatever um, happens uh, for this ruling, the other party will appeal it. So whoever loses is going to lose and um, is, is going to appeal it, basically. Right. So this is starting, uh, like, starting a new process that could have yeah. an. I mean, it just it's it's not it's not even about at this point a resolution. It's about the the excitement of a new process having been started is is kind of where you're at right now. Is that right? Oh yeah, I mean it's about the court taking issues seriously, whereas the previous pro post conviction dismissed the issues out hand, um, especially Asia. And Asia was kind of gone for us until she reentered the scene, having heard um, what Yurik said at the hearing. And we never could figure out like what had happened with Asia. We didn't know she had called Yurik and that. He had misrepresented things to her, and then he misrepresented things in court, and that explained it. So the other thing is that, you know, as there's more legal and public scrutiny, it puts more pressure on the state to decide how it wants to proceed. It could be if this court says, well, he gets a new trial, the state could definitely appeal it, which is most likely, but there's always a chance the state could say, you know, we're just going to stick at this, especially because we're hoping that we're going to have some new evidence in the next couple of months. The state could say, we're sick of this, and we're just going to give him a plea and let him go. So new evidence based on some investigating that your team is doing? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. We have a private investigator working on some leads right now. Okay, that's really interesting. And I'm sure you probably can't talk about that. Is that right? I can't. No, that would ruin it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can imagine that would be the case. Um, I know a big part of the appeal is, you know, it's really sort of around Gutierrez's representation of Adnan. And you said in the AMA, if you could go back in time and give him any advice, it would be to fire her immediately. I had somebody write to me and, and tell me that that, you know, 
they may or may not have had an experience with her themselves. They claim they did, but, you know, I take these things kind of with a grain of salt. But they sort of observed and sort of was thought maybe there was some potentially like some junkie behavior going on, maybe related to her illness, some addiction behavior. Is that something that's crossed your radar at all? Do you have an opinion on that? It would be pure speculation. Right. I don't have any idea. I mean, honestly, I have not been around mm-hmm. um, people who have addictions to, to even be able to gauge. But I always thought it was like in connection to because a lot of times people in private practice might not have health insurance. I just thought maybe it was just like because she had like incredible medical bills. I mean, she was really sick. Yeah, I mean, honestly, to me, it was like, you know, she was sick and sketchy. I mean, it was just a dangerous combination. Right, right. Um, If you throw an addiction in there, then you're pretty much done. But I'd say that if we were to get some more evidence of that or any evidence of that at all, and that would require really talking to her close colleagues and stuff. And the way the Baltimore legal community is, they're kind of clammed up. Like they just don't, nobody wants to talk about her. Sarah Koenig said in the podcast that you approached her because she had covered the Gutierrez story for the Baltimore Sun. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you approach other journalists besides Sarah Koenig? No, she was like my first one. My plan was I would just go through as many as it took. She was the very first person I contacted and, you know, I guess it kind of struck gold. Did you have any um, experience listening to This American Life and hearing about their other, you know, successes in, you know, sort of altering the outcomes of, of legal situations? No. no, this was just, it was just happenstance. It was totally happenstance. I had never, I knew This American Life because I, I listen to NPR in my car every so often, but I had never actually listened to any of their shows and I honestly did not realize um like, Sarah Canning was kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, and she's very unassuming. You know, when you meet her, she's, like, just kind of this really down-to-earth, hippie-ish um, person who's just really earnest. And I, I just didn't – I had no idea. And I was actually kind of skeptical because when she actually responded and said she'd be interested, I was like, this is not somebody who's, like, in Baltimore. Um, I was really hoping for somebody who was a, a Baltimore crime reporter, actually, and who would just be really interested in – and pulling apart, like, stuff, you know, and, and it would have sources on, like, Gutierrez and the crime scene and the Baltimore Police Department who really knew this beat. That was what I had envisioned. I just kind of, her name was just, like, one of the first, it was just the first person I found and emailed, and it was totally random. But, you know, it, nothing's random. <laughs> I don't believe anything's random, so it was kind of meant to be. So, you know, the podcast came out, obviously, it was a huge sensation, and suddenly... This thing that you, I think, have been th- saying for years, like this was a circus, this was crazy, you know, this was an injustice, people need to look at this. Suddenly, millions of people are looking at it also, and a lot of them, you know, Sarah Koenig included, I think at the end sort of agree that, you know, if nothing else, it was handled very poorly. And I think a lot of people believe that. Um, is there a sort of um, like vindication relief, like I'm not crazy like a lot this finally this is seeing the light of day do you are you walking around feeling a little bit of that even though this process isn't resolved and Adnan's future hasn't been resolved gosh I actually never thought about like that because I maybe I focus too much on the people who still aren't convinced you know I think uh and you know Sarah told me that at some point that she's like you know in my heart I just I don't think you did it I I don't I still think you did it but obviously there's no reason for her to either stake her reputation on this or um, there was no smoking gun for her to really say for sure, right? It's just cumulatively she that's how she felt, but she also couldn't like vow his innocence. And I've I've like been more focused on like um, the people who 
are not completely convinced like me. I'm like, how can you not see this? How can you not see what happened here? I, I've never really, I haven't felt vindicated yet. I think, I guess I don't, I might not until he's actually exonerated. I have a question related to those sort of like hardliner, he's definitely guilty people. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, you probably know where I stand if you listen to any of our podcasts. I have, you know, I sort of know what I believe. And it's easy for me to understand someone like you who fervently believes in his innocence because you know him and you love him, right? So there's like so much evidence for you that, you know, points to innocence. To me, I understand the people who just say they don't know or who aren't willing to, you know, commit because something might emerge, but they have a lot of doubts about the process and they have doubts about his innocence uh, or his, his guilt for sure. I, I have a hard time sort of thinking around the people who don't know him or even those who do, who, who do but not well, who have this hard line stance that anybody who thinks he's anything but guilty is crazy. And I, and I wonder, is it racially motivated? Is it sexism? Because this project was sort of advanced and really led, I think, the voice of it was this, like, you know, female journalist who gets a lot of flack for sort of her delivery style. And you, I mean... Or is it something else? I, I can't figure out where the hard line, he's definitely guilty people, what they're motivated by. Have you gotten any sense of that in, in your time sort of as this phenomenon has unfolded? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm also like just astonished because, I mean, I, I don't think they're necessarily, I think the biggest group is the group in the middle. But the people who say he's definitely, I mean, and these are people who just tend to be very sympathetic to Jay and kind of, I totally understand him. And I don't know. What's interesting is they mostly tend to be male, I think. And what I noticed just recently, although a lot of people telling the story in different ways are women, um, even a lot of the very visible supporters who are like making the T-shirts and doing this um, are also women. And definitely a lot of supporters are people who are South Asian or Muslim or Hindu or Sikh. People come from the subcontinent who are like, oh, my God, I totally understood him. So it could just be like people don't understand the cultural differences and that's you know part of the issue for me has always been you know this idea that we are judged by a jury of our peers is really actually not true i mean this was a jury who didn't understand the community or the dynamics or him at all it might be those people who are not necessarily racist but don't get it they mm-hmm. just don't understand maybe they relate to jay more but i i guess on the other hand for those people it might just be equally odd based on what exists that people are convinced of his innocence, too. Like, complete strangers are convinced of his innocence. And there are many who are completely mm-hmm. um, convinced. So I guess you could kind of think about it both ways. Um, right, right. Even people, I've seen it over and over, people say, I definitely think it's guilty, but he deserves any trial. So that's weird to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a, Kevin and I are working on a book right now, and in the book there's a uh, the guy who did it. Uh, there was a lie that he told um, over and over again. And I've been tracking down whether or not there's any verifiable stuff behind this story that he would tell over and over and over again about, like, an ex-girlfriend who had died. And what I've learned, and Sarah, I think, points to this, is that it's impossible to prove something didn't happen. It really is. Even if the police say, we have no reports from that time, it doesn't mean that they never existed at all. It just means they don't have them right now. And so that's, I think, a lot of the tricky stuff is that what is – it's it's easy to prove something did happen relatively to how easy it is to prove it didn't. And I – I think that's really the rub and maybe the point of the whole story in in some way. I don't know. But um, that's why the whole the hard line thing <laughs> just I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult yeah, for me. I mean, that was that's just a function of the fact that the police and Gutierrez didn't do their job. They had to nail down these things. I mean, they didn't they nailed down very little. I don't know if you read Colin Miller's blog 
um, the evidence professor's blogs mm-hmm. and the, and on this, and the last few blogs that he wrote show you how there's no way that all of the statements of the students, uh, the people at Woodlawn, students and teachers, like, that they all could be right because they all contradict one another. Mm-hmm. They all can't be talking about the same day because in one statement, Hayes wearing something, in another statement, she's wearing something else, in a third statement, she's been seen here. Like, that was shit that needed to be nailed down, <laughs> you know, in January, like, literally the day after she disappeared. Mm-hmm. Those are the statements. Why are you taking statements of students and as, a, as an investigation into a missing person after you've, her body's been found and you made an arrest? Right. Right. If you're investigating a missing person, you might want to go to, the, like, the school where she was last seen and be like, who saw her? Because that makes the most sense. Like, why would you wait, like, two and a half months to do that? And so I, I, I blame, you know, a really ridiculous investigation and Gutierrez making absolutely no effort to figure out where Edmon was. Um, and even when we, the community ha- had said, like, these are potential witnesses who might have remembered him, um, at least the moss that evening, um, she just refused to forget calling them to the witness stand. She just didn't even talk to them. She didn't even, call, she didn't even talk to them. Like, she didn't contact anybody, you know, from that list. I'm curious, what do you think is the most, you know, significant development that's come out as, as, as people have sort of been re-looking at and re-weighing the stuff and writing about it? You know, you have Susan Simpson, you have, you know, the Evidence Prof blog. Is there is there one development that you think, wow, this, I mean, aside from the statements, an evidentiary development that you really want people to look at? If there was nothing else, look at this one thing. Well, I would say there's two things, but they kind of go hand in hand. Um, number one is what Susan Simpson, um, the autopsy report, I think, um, you know, it's something that Susan caught and she consulted with a number of medical and forensic experts and they kind of confirmed her concerns with it, um, you know, showed that Hay had lividity, uh, fixed lividity in her front and the anterior. Uh, and that happens after, especially in winter, a person's body has to be laying on that particular side for about 10 hours, 10 to 12 hours for it to become fixed. It just means where the blood has pooled. And it was all on her front, which seems to suggest that after she died, her body was laying face down for about 10 to 12 hours. But when her body was found in Lincoln Park, and as described by Jay repeatedly, she was on her right side. So it seems to suggest that she was somewhere else. She definitely wasn't buried around 7, unless she was buried in her face and later somebody went back and put her on her side. That makes no sense. But that she must have been somewhere on in that position for a long time. She probably was not in the trunk of a car anywhere. She probably wasn't even killed in her car. The condition of the car itself is crazy because it was like spotless when the police found it, like after six weeks in winter, which is impossible pretty much. So I think that the autopsy report, it means she was somewhere else. But where was she for those 10 hours? And Jay's new interview, he said that they, the burial was closer to midnight, and that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. It means she was somewhere else, and then the body was moved and buried around midnight on its side. Now, that then puts into question all of the, first of all, the self-tower evidence, which was completely used inaccurately. And I think Sarah and her team did not do a good job of really examining, like, why this kind of testimony is being thrown out of court around the country. I've had a number of, of experts contact me and say, by the way, you can't use that evidence to pinpoint location. It just doesn't work like that. Numerous people, four or five different, like, major national experts have contacted us to tell us that. And that was the prosecution's entire case, was mm-hmm. Jay's timeline matched up to cell phone records. And my thing is, I just want to know where, where, where was Hay? 
And she had to have been in an open space. If somebody's face down, it would be really hard to be in a small space like a trunk like that. You mean an open like space, even, not necessarily outside, but like in, in a room or even like a van, like someplace right. where there's room for her, for there, her to be that's, spread out. That's what I'm trying to say, yeah. Either in a room or a van. To me, it suggests that she had stopped somewhere to do something, and that's where she just ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. It always sort of struck me, though, with Jay and, you know, the stories he told, how risky it is to sort of pin it on somebody else, you know, because, you know, he, how would he know that Adnan didn't have like a rock solid alibi? It just seems like this is what always confused me about why he was so confident doing that. And it makes me wonder, you know, I know that Adnan can, can't really talk about, you know, a lot of things. As I think Sarah did a decent job laying out in the podcast as why he can't, for example, say, here's what I think happened. But is there sort of an alternate theory that supports the idea that Jay was somehow involved enough and would be able to be comfortable enough sort of bringing Adnan into it? Does Adnan have an alternate theory of what happened? Does he, does he speculate? Do you speculate? You know, you have a, a story that you've played out and like, this makes sense. And it makes sense not only in terms of the evidence, but also in why Jay would think he could just throw Adnan's name in there and um, that would work as a story. Well, the thing is that Jay didn't just throw Adnan's name in there. Like, it, so that's not how it happened. Mm-hmm. The, the police went to Jay already with Adnan's name. They didn't go to Jay saying, we think you killed this girl. They said that we think this guy had something to do with it. Like Adnan was their primary suspect from day one. And Susan Simpson, her, her, one of her recent blogs, she writes about Dawn, how the police basically... Like, the police had no reason not to investigate Dawn in the same way they investigated Adnan, because Dawn, in fact, was her current boyfriend, had been with her the night before. She was supposed to have seen him that day, and it's almost kind of sketchy whether or not he was actually working on that day. I mean, his alibi was his mother, and then the employment records for that day from the other store were not produced for months and months and months after the defense team tried over and over and over to get them. And once produced, I mean, Elise Susan thinks that they don't look quite right, that she thinks they might have been fudged. She's not suggesting that Dawn did it, and nobody is necessarily saying, but the, the point is, like, the police had every reason to look at Dawn. Now, Jay had the car all day. Jay had the phone all day. All his calls are his, except for that the one Misha call, right? Mm-hmm. When, when the police went to Jed and Jay, like, they didn't go saying that we suspect you, but I do think they leaned on him and said that you're going to get charged if you don't help us in this. I think the same thing happened with another witness, Bilal, in the case, who, who said that he saw Adnan that night. But the thing about Adnan's thing is that it was just a matter of that little bit of space between school and track, right? It was a risk for them, but it wasn't a big risk because they're talking about a half an hour and who can kind of really account. So we're not talking, this is not like an era where you have smartphones and you can, we track almost everything we're doing with our updates and tweets and that. It wasn't a big risk. Adnan did not have to account for, Jay knew his schedule. Jay knew his schedule and Jay had weeks and weeks afterwards to ask Adnan. You know, hey, dude, what were you doing that day after school? I'm like, I have no idea what those conversations could have been. The one thing that's sort of come up lately, and it's okay if you can't, you know, be detailed about it, but um, it came up in the AMA. It's come up on a few of the blogs, uh, and we heard about it briefly in the podcast, was the neighbor boy story. And um, I think you said in the AMA that if there's, you know, one, you know, kind of one thing that you want, that, that, that you, you sort of wish we could look at or a person that you wish you could talk to, it would be the, the neighbor boy. And that's, of course, the person who had a story about he told a, his neighbor girl about, uh, yeah. you know, what he had seen, what had happened. Um, why the focus now on neighbor boy? 
I mean, I have always been focused on him. I think that he's a childhood friend of Jay's. I think that the girl who told her father, they called the police, they took it very seriously. Like, you don't just call the police, especially in, you know, they know each other, the neighbors, right? Unless mm-hmm. they, because they, that could really kind of hurt a relationship. But they had to have taken it really seriously to make that phone call. And she believed him and she knew him. So she probably could gauge if he was just bullshit. Like she had no reason to make it up. She also didn't, wouldn't have known, like, certain details unless somebody had told her. For him to then say, I never said any of that, is ridiculous. There's no way that she could have known any kind of details related to Jay's story. Because Jay's story is the one that has the trunk pop. This guy is friends with Jay. Now, beyond that, there apparently have been some exchanges he's had with Jay on social media <laughs> that seem to show that they're not in a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, like recently and also seem like they, there were some exchanges that might have been a bit incriminating i just we don't know yet could be totally nothing yep i think a couple of people close to jay know i mean i think jay's one of the people who talk mm-hmm. it seems like he told all kinds of people all kinds of stuff but he a couple of people had to know the truth jay knows the truth whether he's completely making it all up jay knows the truth about whether he assisted a third party jay's the one who holds the key to all this but i think neighbor boy knows for sure are there things that you know sarah had uh that she cut out of the podcast that you wish she hadn't left on the floor oh definitely but i couldn't even tell you them now <laughs> <laughs> there are things she told me that i was like oh my god why wouldn't you include that um that she didn't Right. And she only told me in confidence, and so I can't even share it. So, do you think though that the the case and the and the sort of looking at it and the you know the looking at the prosecutor Urich and is it is it maybe taking sort of the true crime narrative and getting people to think more critically about their assumptions about the justice system, especially in a city like Baltimore? Do you think that's a positive outcome, or is is there not a positive outcome for you unless Adnan is released? No, no, there's def- these are definitely positive outcomes. I'm hearing this everywhere I'm speaking. I mean, people kind of peripherally have heard, you know, oh, that sometimes prosecutors do something or something, but people are definitely, I mean, the response is that, you know, we're just kind of shocked at uh, how the case was mishandled and the kind of dirty tricks they did, like framing it, you know, in this very anti-Muslim biased way and using his religion against him and just all these other, you know, the things that happened. And I've, I'm just seeing a lot more conversations. And, what, and, and what's interesting is that we're in this era of, like, exonerate this. Like, I think every three or four days, like, you hear about a new exoneration. Like, it's really picked up pace. Um, and even in Baltimore, uh, what I've recently heard, and I have to actually look into it because I just heard it in passing, is I think the DA's office just opened a conviction integrity division or something like that. Hmm where they're going to be reviewing convictions. And so you see this trend, I think, that's happening through a lot of exonerations. There was just an exoneration, not just, but I mean, this guy was recently exonerated here in Baltimore, Fabian Burgess, uh, and he just you know, filed suit against two of the detectives that are from the Don's case. So I think locally in the legal community, there's, there is a lot more scrutiny. I've heard that the attorney general's office is paying attention, the prosecutors are paying attention, everybody's paying attention, judges are too. I think the real problem is accountability. Like, you know, detectives and prosecutors, they can get away with a lot. Lawyers can just get away with a lot. There's very little accountability. Yeah, that connection, I think, that you talked about, the personal connection, you brought that connection to millions of people. I know that I feel... Like, I have a personal stake in what happens to Adnan. I think that's because of what you did. And I think that was, I don't know if you meant to do it. I don't know if that's what you thought you were doing when you contacted Sarah as a journalist to see if she could look into Gutierrez's defense. But, um, you know, that was a big thing that you did. And I 
I can tell you that I really appreciate you having done it and the way that it's made so many people look at him and look at stories like his differently. So thanks for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you were a radio producer and you had uh, your dream sort of pop or otherwise theme song that you would use to sort of signify where you're at in your life right now, what would that be? Oh, my God, where I'm at in my life? Yeah, like do you, do you have a favorite song that sort of you think kind of like represents you? Do you have something that you listen to in the car really loudly? Yeah, but you know what? It's like South Asian Sufi music, so <laughs> <laughs> that's where I'm at in my life. How's that? Uh, that's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can send you a link of, uh, of what I'm talking about exactly so you get an idea. That would be awesome. I really appreciate it. Hello, Concord. <laughs> it's like very space age what's going on here, guys. Yeah, you should see what's going on here. We're trying to adjust a chair. So joining me now is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello again, Kevin. I'll be your uh, neighbor boy any day, Rebecca. <laughs> and uh, joining us remotely again today from the studio at the University of New Hampshire in Durham, thank you so much for UNH for letting us use your studio, is Toby Balt, crime fiction writer, resident naysayer, and noir expert. Hello, Toby. Good morning. Also joining us is defense investigator, journalist, and true crime author, Laura Bricker. Hi, Laura. Hello. Okay, guys, so much to talk about here. I know you've all listened to the interview that I recorded with Rabia. Let's talk about first, though, what's actually in Adnan's appeal, which we talked about in that interview. Kevin, I know that you've read the appeal thoroughly. Do you want to just summarize it for us? Yeah, I can do it in one minute here, okay? Adnan Syed, appellant versus state of Maryland, 31 pages. And uh, we have um, the actual uh, documents up on our website right now, crimewriterson.com. So like we said, it's, it's basically going after two things here, that uh, uh, that the, the Asia McLean affidavit uh, was not uh, taken into effect and that there was ineffective counsel on the part of Gutierrez. And it relies very heavily on a landmark case called Strickland versus Washington, which is essentially the, the Miranda case of the Sixth Amendment. And Rebecca, the Sixth Sixth Amendment is which one? Uh, right. It is the one about due process and speedy trial, confronting your accuser and having legal representation. So basically what they're saying when they, you know, they're not, they do not have to prove that it would have changed the outcome. They just have to have, quote, the reasonable probability that, for, but for the counsel's unprofessional errors, the results of the proceeding would have uh, been different. So there has to be the probability that something might have been there. They don't have to, like, prove that case. And one of the other things that they cited here was a quote from defense expert Margaret Mead talking about Baltimore City, and she said, quote, she had never encountered a case in which the state was not willing to reach a re resolution by plea bargain. So the plea bargain argument, they said, look, it happens all the time, and it didn't happen in this case so that's why it's peculiar. So, um, you know, on uh, uh, all the people that I've read that have looked at the case said that one of the arguments is stronger than the other one. The state has a month to file its response. And uh, they think that, like, as Rabia said, you know, June is the probably be the hearing. And then if it's not uh, continued, then we're going to have an appeal 
from one side or the other. So this is going to keep going up the chain. There's not going to be any uh, quick resolution to it. Right. And the thing that we heard, I think, Robbie say, which we can talk about in a minute, is that you know, she knows that there could be many different outcomes, and one of them could be a new trial. And they're actively collecting evidence for a potential new trial, which was really interesting, I thought, that she's had an investigator to do that. Right. And in an appeal like this, new evidence is not part of the argument. They can't introduce it there. They just have to argue that there were errors in the original trial and in, in, in the the, uh, the judge's appeal. So that's what they're focusing on now. But, right, I mean, if they have new evidence, well, I'm dying to know what that is, and we should talk about that. It would be quite the reversal of fortune moment. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie about Klaus von Bülow's overturned conviction at appeal with new evidence, but it's a great film, great film based on a true crime that I recommend. Uh, Silver, Ron Silver plays Alan Dershowitz, and every time I see Alan Dershowitz, I actually think it's Ron Silver because he's so good in that movie. (laughs) Okay, Toby, I'm coming to you now. Tell me what you thought in general of the Rabia interview, just sort of her attitude, the way that she came across, the things she talked about. Any surprises, anything sort of stick out to you about, you know, just kind of what she's like just to talk to? Uh, yeah, I mean, she, she's very uh, personable. Uh, she sure has a hell of a lot going on in her life. I guess it was interesting to me in that for someone who's such an advocate uh, for Adnan, that she seemed to be uh, sort of very realistic and grounded about what the expectations could be going forward. She's obviously a very appealing person. She is a very appealing person. I found her very, very warm. I really did. I, initially, I told her we'd talk for 15 minutes, and I did feel like she would have stayed on the phone for two or three hours if I had uh, sort of let it go on. Um, the thing that really struck me, too, you know, you sort of talk about her being an advocate and being realistic, um, and I didn't mention this in my conversation with her, but she did mention it on Reddit, which is that, you know, she knows it's a possibility that Adnan could be offered an Alford plea at some point. That's the plea where you uh, say, I'm going to plead guilty even though I didn't do it, which, you know, it's a little bit controversial for people who claim that they're innocent. But she said in Reddit that if he was offered that plea, she would absolutely tell him to take it. She doesn't really care whether or not he has to say he's guilty. She just wants him out. And I think that's a really, really interesting point of view. Um, So, Laura, you also listened to the interview with Rabia. Tell me what sort of stuck out to you in terms of what she was like, her attitude, you know, things that she said that popped for you. Yeah, I guess I was surprised by her feeling when you were talking about whether she felt vindicated um, now by all of the outpouring of support for Adnan based on Serial and all of the people that, you know, really felt like some sort of injustice had been done here. And I was surprised that she didn't feel vindicated at all. I mean, I think at least, you know, I would have, if had been in her shoes, I would have felt somewhat validated by the number of people that said something definitely isn't right about this case. But I guess that just showed her, you know, level of dedication to seeing Adnan actually cleared. What about you, Kevin? What what kind of popped out for you in this interview? It's exactly what Laura said. Was that I was really kind of surprised that you know the, the she could not have imagined the runaway success of Serial and the way it brought attention to this case. And I cannot think of any other criminal case in the past 10 years or 15 years where uh, so much attention has been paid on uh, post-conviction process. But still, you know, I mean, I guess she says that, you know, she's just not going to really feel like she got anything done unless there's a good outcome uh, for Adnan. You know, and I also thought, you know, the, the idea that 
you know, we've all been like in that position when there, you know, we've got somebody who's like, we just tell people, oh, this guy is crazy, or this whole thing at work is completely messed up, and you feel like you're you're selling it so much that you just know the other person doesn't believe it, and then they experience it, and they're like, wow, you were absolutely right, that is way crazy, and so. I, I, that would have been how I would have felt if I was like just carrying this around about my friend Adnan, and then you get Sarah to come in, and then the millions of other people talking about it, saying, "Yeah, that's crazy." I mean, that I thought would be vindication, but she's got her eyes on the prize. She does have her eyes on the prize. She seems very singularly focused, but although on on many many different things, so and very warm and very right real. You know, just listening to you talk to her, just completely different. I don't want to say a different. Uh, uh, you know, perception of her, but you know, just like, hey, here's somebody who's you know a lawyer, but also like, watch likes Netflix like the rest of us, and you know, she's just it seems like uh, you know somebody you'd want uh, to have coffee with. Somebody you want to hang out with? Well, yeah. she might not. She probably she'd cry. Yeah, that was probably a bad pick. <laughs> I actually wrote tea, her a note after tea, our right? inter- after our interview uh, last night. I actually wrote her a note and I said that was really a dumb question about the junkie thing because it occurred you know occurred to me you probably don't really don't know a lot of junkies since in your community nobody drinks or does drugs and and she wrote back and she said no I thought it was a great question it's actually given me something to think about and maybe investigate but it, it goes to the one of the points that Sarah made in the case about cultural misunderstanding and there's look I got to admit there's a lot of people that don't understand the the courtesies of the the Muslim culture and the other thing you, you, you know I mean when you see the photo of Rabia uh, and she's she's wearing the, the hijab. The hijab. You know, it's like you. Some people get a picture in her mind that she probably speaks with a thick accent, and that you you know that she has a certain kind of lifestyle. Um, and while she's very Americanized, you know, and, and well, she's most, American. She is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, even this the way describing it, you just it, right, it is right. so hard gonna, to not say. I'm just going to give you the quiet coyote symbol and go on to somebody else. <laughs> but I actually do think it makes a good point. And, you know, I happen, just listeners, Kevin is very culturally sensitive, despite how it just may have come across just now. Me so, talk pretty someday. <laughs> so, Toby, you know, one of the things that sort of came out and that we talked about, um, and I'm, I'm asking you this question because of, of the four of us, you are the only one who sort of leaned toward Adnan being guilty. And I don't think I would think of you as a hard Hardliner. I don't. I don't think you've ever said I'm 100 percent sure Adnan's guilty. But there are people, especially on the web, especially in the Reddit community, especially sort of in social media, um, who are hardline guilters. They they are full on. Adnan is definitely guilty. And as I said to Robbie, that's very hard for me to understand because. It is impossible to prove what we don't know. What did you think of her response to that? And what did you think of sort of her analysis of, you know, what she had to say about all of that? Yeah, you know, it's something I've thought a little bit about, too. You know, I think for people who are sort of hardline about Adnan being guilty, I mean, you, you start off with the idea that he's just a manipulator, you know, and that his sort of charm and, you know, his vulnerability is all just basically an act to try and get, you know, Sarah, who, like, clearly, you know, has grown to like him, to do the work to to get him out of jail. And I mean, I, th- I think that that's really, that's the argument, like, why people would think that way. Uh, you know, in some ways, I think it's, it's, you know, are you are you predisposed to not trust somebody who's been found guilty? I, the one person I do know, who is pretty hard line about it, hasn't even really listened to a whole lot. And he, his, what he told me is I listened to like the first 
30 seconds of him talking, I was like, oh, man, this guy's guilty. I don't even need to listen to the rest of this thing. That's, uh, that's but he crazy. Kinda, he kinda, but he kind of soldiered on because his wife was into it and, you know, she was talking about it all the time. So he listened to it. But, you know, he kind of came in, I think, with the attitude that if this guy's in jail, he's been convicted, all this stuff, he's obviously gone through the system. Chances are more likely that he's guilty than he's not. And then upon hearing, you know, Adnan and sort of the, the I mean, he's, he's kind of a smooth guy. His, you know, immediate take and continues to be his take is he's a smooth talker and he's trying to pull something over. And they found a guy who can make people like him even over the airwaves through the force of his personality. And he's just manipulating people. Now, Toby, I want to come back to you on this, but I'm going to ask Laura this question and then come back to you. Um, At a talk, I think it was earlier this week or last week, um, Sarah Koenig made some mention. She she sort of had a comment where she talked about admitting sounding like she was flirting with Adnan when she was interviewing him. And and she sort of talked about that as as sort of being part of the dynamic. And she was immediately sort of attacked online. There were articles written about it. People tweeted about it. And, you know, I know how it struck me. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But when you think about, you know, a journalist sort of talking about how they sounded to themselves, how they felt when they had, you know, been interviewing somebody for a year and they make a comment like that, does it sort of validate this idea that, you know, she wasn't dispassionate or is it was it honest? How does that come across to you? I think it was honest. Um, I mean, honestly, if you are working with the same source, interviewing the same person for a year as a journalist, your goal really is to build a rapport with that person so that the person will trust you and talk with you and be comfortable sharing things with you. And I think that there may be times during that process that maybe you do let your guard down a little bit and you may be laughing a little bit more when you're talking to them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not being objective. It just means that the way that you're approaching the process is really trying to get the best possible interview from that person by making them feel comfortable. Right. And I, I listening to my own tape with Rabia, if she was a man, I think it would be very easy for me. You know, I'm, I'm straight. So if she was a man, it would be very easy, I think, to sort of say, hey, Rebecca was being very flirtatious. But it is it is the rapport, right? I mean, that's what do you think, Toby? I know that you were, um, you know, you had a you had a pretty strong reaction to you know Sarah sort of being attacked for, for being a flirter with Adnan. Well, I, you know, I, I think reporters are people and you end up having, you know, regardless of how long you're sort of interacting with somebody, you have an impression of them. And as if you're interacting with them a lot, you probably find out more about it when people are sort of more positive towards the people that are interacting with a lot. So I think, it, you know, I think it's good self-awareness on, on her part to, to acknowledge that. I think it goes on in all types of journalism. I mean, John McCain is on all the Sunday talk shows all the time, and I, I, I think it's essentially because they like him, and they, they like they like having him on. It's not that he's wielding great power right now. Yeah, I, I, to criticize her for that, I think is more a critique of the illusion that that some journalists try to hold as as to their absolutely, you know, uh, zero bias and and absolutely non judgmental beyond the facts. And I, you know, that's that's just a standard that I think is impossible to meet. Do you think it's sexist? Uh, no. It, there, there's plenty of criticism 
of of male journalists for doing similar things, I think. Well, speaking of male journalists doing similar things, I know, Kevin, you have sort of a, you know, a great uh, sort of epic story, I think, that, you know, sort of plays into this. You know, how did you react, you know, when you sort of hear that sort of accusation that, that Sarah used this flirting relationship and maybe it, it corrupted her reporting or her sort of accurate, you know, looking into things? What's your reaction to that? Uh, well, first of all, I will uh, verify that, yes, you are straight. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think especially, you, you know, any journalist works to build trust with a, um, a, a, a an interviewee, um, a source. And so it is human nature, especially the more time you spend with them, to have a rapport. And, you know, the, the, the gender dynamic of it, you know, might very easily lead to something very flirty. And I guess it just comes down to whether or not it was sort of natural or whether this was a contrivance to build uh, more trust in Adnan. And, you know, when it comes down to doing writing about this, writers have to ask themselves, to whom do you do the disservice to? To whom do you do the line, stab in the back? The subject that you're writing about or your audience? So if you you either go and you stab the person in the back that you've been you, you know that you've been talking to and they've been pouring their heart out to you in your writing or you are lying to your audience and you're doing them the disservice by by polishing up the life of the person that you've been you've been dealing with. Are you, so are you it's saying tough. that Sarah Koenig stabbed Adnan in the back? No, and I don't know. And I think you try to balance that. I mean, but I mean, there's always a little bit of both. That you know, you you try to like let the audience know something about the subject that maybe they didn't know, and maybe puts them in a good light. Um, but it's like if something bad comes, do you, do you not do the thing that's also bad or, or put puts them in a bad light? So I don't know. Maybe it, it was a little sexist, and Toby's right. It was very much a critique from journalists who, I mean, I think have little exposure to this first-person type of, of journalism. Well, I think it's uh, the point Kevin made is, is interesting, and I think you know probably two of the most famous true crime books sort of fall on opposite sides of that, where you have uh, in um, Fatal Vision, you have Joe McGinnis uh, clearly – betraying Jeffrey McDonald in, in sort of getting his trust and then writing this book about how he's definitely guilty. Sorry, the spoiler alert a little bit late. <laughs> oh, Jesus, uh, Toby! I know, I did it again. And, uh, the emails! Uh, and, uh, but then also um, uh, uh, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, where, you know, he, he has... Careful, careful. ...emotional <laughs> connection with this guy who may or may not be guilty. And... Uh, Oh, come on. Yeah, bullshit. He's guilty. We know that. <laughs> okay, all right. I didn't want to give that away. Um, it, it, but, but that doesn't come out in the, in the book, and it actually comes, comes out later, and, uh, and I guess there's some controversy around that. So anyway, I, I thought that was an interesting point that Kevin made, and, and that's really been kind of borne out in, in some of those sort of highest profile uh, true crime literature. It also bore out, I mean, if you haven't listened to the podcast Criminal, we have posted a link to that on our website on the resources page on crimewriterson.com. Kevin actually recorded an episode with the podcasters who make Criminal about an experience he had uh, with a relationship he had with a female serial killer here in New Hampshire. I recommend listening to that episode. It's called Dear Sheila. You, you really will learn a lot about Kevin, I think, that's worth learning. Yes, and please you to note that. that Rebecca, is, when she says relationship, she's using air quotes. I am using air quotes. Relationship. It wasn't really a, <laughs> well, with a serial killer. Yeah, it was poetry. 
poetry involved. So, Laura, I'm going to ask you two questions now. I hate you. I hate you. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you two questions now, Laura, since I know you have a a headphone issue, and I just want to make sure that you know you're going to get two questions. You know, one of the things that Rabia pointed out was that, you know, a lot of the people sort of falling on the side of Adnan's innocence um, are women. A lot of the people who are really advocating for him being innocent are women, and a lot of the hard-line guilters are men. I thought that was something that um, I kind of walked into the interview sort of like suspecting um, and also, you know, given the community where a lot of this has happened on Reddit, which I don't think anybody on Reddit would be surprised for anyone to say that is kind of like a, a community sort of known for its, you know, some sexism. But she's sort of saying that's playing out in the real world, too. How did you feel when you heard her say that? Well, I felt bad for Kevin. I mean, I don't know what this is saying about him. <laughs> oh, that's right, because he's an innocent person, yeah. right? So, I, I mean, I just I, I don't really know what to take from that. I guess I mean, you know, People might say, well, women are more sympathetic. I'm not sure if there were more women listeners. Um, But, I mean, I know men that fall on the side of thinking that Adnan is innocent. And I know women that think he's guilty. So, I I mean, I think generally that may be the case. But... I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I, I want to move on to sort of the evidentiary stuff because you're a former defense investigator, and um, I think that Rabia talked about some, you know, revelations, some evidence that they've sort of found poking through all the files that I'm really surprised, even with a horrible defense, didn't even come up before this podcast and before this project. You know, one of the things she mentions is the conflicting stories that the different students told because they were questioned, you know, weeks and weeks after Hay disappeared and not you know, the day after she disappeared. As a defense investigator, is this work that you would have been asked to do if you had a, you know, a, if you were defending a, a client? Would you have been asked to sort of parse through the interviews and, 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 and you know, look for differences? Would you have been asked to re-interview the students? What kind of work was missing from this case on the defense side? Oh, there was a lot of work that was missing. I have felt from the beginning that the way Adnan's first defense attorney approached this case was she clearly had a theory in her mind of how she was going to defend this case, and she didn't seem like she was willing to actually flesh out other possibilities. Obviously, the biggest um, thing that stands out to me is the Asia McLean issue. You know, uh, I did many cases that were alibi cases, and if I had an alibi witness like Asia and she sent a letter, I would interview her as soon as I could, which didn't happen in this case. I would say, do you have any friends that were with you? I want to talk to them as well. I would go to the location where she was. Are there any surveillance cameras? Are there any other independent people that may have been here at that time? Um, And I would have also re-interviewed all of the witnesses that the police spoke with. Um, You know, often the police are hurried when they're doing their investigations, and they may not ask the same type or level of questions that the defense would ask. So I would go through their statements. I would make notes of things that I wanted to fill in, and I would go re-interview all of those people. And I might also ask them if there were other witnesses that I should speak with. So I felt like overall the defense investigation that was done for Adnan initial case was very weak. I I think that it was, too. And, Kevin, one of the things that popped out, um, you know, and I think that this isn't going to be news to everybody who's listening, but it was news to you, were the autopsy results and sort of what they say about the story that we heard, which was that Hay was in a trunk. Um, That stuck out to you. Tell me how you reacted when you heard Rabia talking about that. The whole idea, like Rabia's talking about, you know, uh, liver mortis, li- lividity. Um, it, it, yeah, the the. I mean, there is there's some scientific proof there that uh, hay was on her stomach. Uh, you know, in the in the hours after she died. So it just it doesn't seem at all possible 
Well, she, she that it, it proves that she wasn't wrapped up like a pretzel in the back of a trunk. So that is really interesting. And then you have to wonder, okay, crime scene, where was she killed? How was she able? She it was in a place where the killer thought she would go be where she would be unprotected or undetected detected for quite a long time. Rigor mortis was something I always kind of wondered about and um, it, because it, not because uh, like investigators sometimes use when the body stiffens to determine time of death it would be impossible to go back and determine a time of death at this point but if Hay's body had gone into rigor which can you know start to happen four to six hours after the death why would that not be a detail that Jay would remember about burying the body? If if Hay's body was twisted, or I mean, because she was found in the position of, uh, you know, sort of like a fetal position, uh, moving her into that position would have been extremely difficult if rigor had set in. So that would be some kind of indication to the to the cops about when Hay actually died, or about the veracity of Jay's story about the time of the burial. So rigor mortis and the liver mortis, I think those are two very scientific things that they should, you know, go down those roads if they get a new trial. So Toby, when you heard this evidentiary stuff, when you heard Rabia, you know, sort of talking about you know, stuff that's come up really since the podcast. I mean, I think that that's kind of what's made people sort of examine and relook at these autopsy results and so forth. How did you feel when you hear, you know, her start sort of talking about, you know, Hayes' body, lividity, scientific stuff, new evidence? Does it make you feel any different about sort of what you listened to for 12 weeks? You know, are there any pieces of evidence she talked about that really popped out for you as stuff you want to know more about? Yeah, I guess there's a couple things there. One is it, it certainly seems like the uh, autopsy evidence leaves a lot of room for reasonable doubt. So I, I think that would be, you know, kind of crucial in, in any kind of retrial. It would have been nice to have had during his initial trial, as I'm sure he feels. Um, but then the other, I mean, what's kind of interesting to me from sort of the standpoint of looking at the podcast as sort of, you know, a work of journalism or a work of art is that, most things, like whether it's a movie or, you know, it's it's a true crime piece uh, that's either a movie or a TV show or a book, there, there is some kind of conclusion. And because there wasn't a conclusion to this, that it kind of sort of lives on outside of Sarah's control. And I think one of the things that came up in the Rabia interview is is when you asked her about stuff that didn't make it to the podcast. And she said, oh, you know, there's so much stuff. And I'd be like, why Why didn't you put that in? You should definitely use that. And then she didn't. I know. It was killing me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So so now we've kind of come to a point where up until a certain point, you know, Sarah was really in control of the narrative. It was kind of, you know, I don't know if she was really shaping it, but she was at least following it in the way that she wanted to follow it. And now that she doesn't have sort of control over how the information gets out and stuff. Not that it's like kind of nefarious control or anything, but it, but the story has kind of gotten out from uh, out of her control. So I think that, that that's kind of an interesting thing as well, and I, and I think kind of unusual. It is unusual, and I think one of the consequences of this, and, and may, I think this might be what Sarah did intend to do, because This American Life has done this before, is to get some scrutiny on the legal system itself. Now, Laura, you may or may not have seen this play out in New Hampshire at all in the work that you've done. What did you think about this idea that now, you know, because of this podcast, millions of people are looking at this case, this is their lens, and they're sort of 
looking at trial process, fairness, due process with a little bit more cynicism. Well, I think that's great because I think, you know, we've often heard about wrongful convictions, death penalty cases that are overturned. But I think a lot of people, you know, see that from a distance and they didn't really have a human story that was as that connected them to that process like Serial did with Adnan's story. And I think it's made people really think and question, um, you know, what is going on in the judicial process? Do things like this really happen? Uh, You know, I think some people like to think that, you know, the prosecutors never do anything out of line. And, you know, that's not the case. Uh, You know, defense attorneys do things that are out of line. Prosecutors do things that are out of line. But I think, you know, from my perspective, what I saw in the cases I worked on New Hampshire is that the defense keeps the system fair. It keeps the system working the way it should by questioning things that the prosecution is doing when evidence is coming in at the last minute that maybe you didn't know about um, until then or when witnesses are showing up that you didn't know about or even when they're filing motions in such a way to sort of... uh, um, throw you off. I think that it it really um, has shed light on the fact that the system isn't always fair, but that there are good people out there that are trying to keep it that way. Okay, so now let's just shift gears significantly. For those of you listeners who have not watched Going Clear, the HBO documentary, watch it and then come back and listen to this part or just listen to this part because we're going to talk a little bit about something that everyone loves talking about. And that is the um, religion known as Scientology. So, Toby, I'm going to go to you first. I know that you read the book. You're like one of those Game of Thrones people who compares the book to the show. But you read the Going Clear book and you watched the documentary. What did you think of the documentary? Uh, I know that it didn't include some stuff that was in the book, but do you think it did a good job telling the story of the quagmire that is Scientology? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, the movie was 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 really good. I thought, and um, it touches on I think most of the main things that the book does. You know, the book just because it has more room to deal with these things, gets into a lot more detail and it's kind of a lot richer. I thought the movie was great and I think there were some things that the movie did that the, that the book just couldn't do, uh, particularly you know, that celebration they had after they won the tax battle with right. the IRS. And, <laughs> the you know, war is over. Yeah. The war is over. Any, any, any organization that makes you root for the IRS, I think. is. Yeah. <laughs> All they were missing was like one of those guys in the Navy suits kissing a woman in Times Square. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what it looked like was, uh, you know, triumph of the will. You know, I mean, it just it, it was so unself-aware of how that would look to anybody who wasn't just totally – uh, bought into Scientology. It, it was just, it was very strange. So I thought that was that added a lot of context. Even if you if you'd read the the book and then and then watched the movie. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was I thought it was great. And if people like the movie, I would, I would definitely encourage them to read the book because you're not just reading a. a a book form of what you saw in the movie. There's just there's a lot more there. There is more there. Does the book get into um, David Miscavige's uh, missing wife? It does. It does a little. It, it gets into a whole bunch of sort of individual things. There's there's Shelley Miscavige who sorry uh, Miscavige yes who hasn't you know been seen publicly since August of 2007. Uh, there's a story of a woman named Lisa McPherson who is a Scientologist who uh, died in the care of other Scientologists after she had a psychotic break in Clearwater, uh, Florida. Um, 
So there's the, and there's there's a, a couple of harrowing tales of of people who tried to get out of Scientology and and what that really involved. That kind of kind of read like you know, Mission Impossible, you know. Uh, it, it, it really does. I mean, I sort of had three, my three jaw-dropping takeaways were like the Sea Org people, when you look back, it reminded me of like Unlost, you know, like the others who went to the island. They were so idealistic. <laughs> you mean the and, Dharma Initiative Yeah, people? and now they've yeah. been like like marginalized. And then you had, um, you know, John Travolta, basically, what they said, what the former spokesperson said was that he's being blackmailed to stay in Scientology, which was, I think, an amazing, I mean, I think it's something we all sort of joke about and suspect, but it's an amazing thing for just him to say. And the third thing, my favorite moment of all, was Paul Haggis, who was, he said, you know, you're in it for years before you get to see what the religious doctrine actually is. And then he sees it and he says, you know, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, very, very interesting. Kevin, what did what did you think of the documentary? What did you think of just sort of the entire thing? You, you sort of sat there with your mouth open watching it along with me. Yeah, that was the part where he got to like level three. OT3, I think, was the, you know, the time when he, he, you know, like, now we're going to share with you this. And I really, I, I kind of knew the outline of what the um, origin story is in Scientology, but I, I was like, I want to hear that again and just, um, it just absorb it. And I just was kind of like, you know, very interested in, well, Elron Hubbard's background and, you know, this weird story about taking his daughter to, was it Cuba or somewhere in, in, in South or Central America and leaving her with a family where, where the mother and daughter both had uh, a mental um, a re- retardation. And um, it just seemed like the whole uh, religion sort of changed character when uh, uh, Miss Cabbage comes along and takes over. A- and, you know, it does really become this whole different thing where, uh, you know, you're throwing people in the hole for a long, long time. And then it becomes about you can just give money to us. And that's how they they end up being, you know, this great big powerful real estate holder. And and um, and by the way, because if there are Scientologists listening, they're going to get really mad. I'm just say, hey, all, I'm all for Scientology. It's these other three guys here <laughs> who, uh, you know, you should uh, squirrel nut. What were they? Were they? Not, what were oh, they, squirrels? The, yeah, or? yeah, the, the, the show up as dressed as, with squirrel oh T-shirts. And, yeah, I just can't believe that. Yeah, so, uh, Laura, you have been sort of chomping at the bit. I know that you have a personal uh, experience, a brush with Scientology, and you'd love to tell the story. I would love to hear it. I told you to save it. So I would love to hear your Scientology story. Can you tell it for us? Oh, I would be glad to. So it was, um, I was maybe three months out of college, my first reporting job out of the University of New Hampshire. Um, and there was a vocal critic of Scientology named Robert Minton. He was a retired investment banker from Boston. And he had been helping people escape from the church, which, as Toby said, is no e- easy feat. Um, he'd been featured on Dateline talking about this. And he, um, you know, his main point was, I just can't believe these people are being so brainwashed and they're believing in the evil galactic overlord. And this is just insane. Um, He had a summer home in a small New Hampshire town, and he had taken some of the former Scientologists there to kind of help them escape and kind of, you know, get back on their feet. Well, the local chapter found out where he was, and so they kept going to his house, picketing out front. And one night he had had enough and went out in his bathrobe and fired a shotgun blast at them. And uh, his quote afterwards was classic. He said, you know, it's a good thing it's not Texas where you shoot first and ask questions later. Um, So he didn't hit any of them. But this just launched, you know, a several-month-long incident, ongoing incident, where the Scientology people would come up and they would pick it. And every time they would come up, I would go out there. 
Um, and one day I met with the Scientology group. There was like four of them at the local police department. And they're like, you know, we're the Scientologists and we're here to pick it. Do you want to come in the car with us? And don't ask me what I was thinking, but I got in the car with them. And then I'm thinking this might not be such a great idea. Um, They gave me a CD of their music, which I decided might be subliminal messaging. I don't know. I burned it. Um, But the thing that struck me is I just remember that time period, uh, you know, Robert Minton telling me how uh, they targeted journalists. And the first incident that I had where I went out to cover a story, you know, I hadn't even heard of Scientology. Uh, Robert Minton tells me about this. On the way home, my car dies. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, they found me already. Because he had told me, like, lock up your pets. They kill the cats of journalists. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? Um, So it was a really interesting few months um, with these people calling me on the phone, repeatedly trying to quash any story I was writing, um, you know, continuing to badmouth Robert Minton and accuse him of being uh, mentally unbalanced. Uh, it, It was really frightening. It was interesting because, you know, one of the things that popped out to me was that um, Kevin and I are working on a book right now uh, about the Seth Mazalia case. And, you know, he's a guy who convinced a young girl basically to do his bidding is sort of really the, the heart of the story. And, you know, one of the things he did was he took fictional stories and he used them to manipulate her. So he sort of spun these tales of past lives and, you know, my, my past lives spirits need you to do this for me. And, you know, one of them was that, like, you know, they in the in the past had ridden dragons together and, you know, who could write... And, and as Kevin points out in, a, in the draft of our book that I looked at the chapter last night, uh, you know, she didn't recognize this as the plot from Avatar, you know, basically that he's telling her. And this is what L. Ron Hubbard did. He took the fictional science fiction stories he'd written and he turned them into religious doctrine. And I think it's easy for people to say, Toby, I'm going I'm to address this to you. You know, how is this any different than other religions with fantastical stories? There, the difference for me is that you could pick up a fictional pulp story he wrote and read the plot, <laughs> you know, the origin story plot. How did that? How did that strike you in terms of you know the having read the book that people believe? Like, is is it because they start light and then go heavy later? How did that work in the book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in the book and in the uh, the New Yorker article that was before the book that kind of morphed into the book, a lot of it's through the eyes of uh, of Paul Haggis. And it does, you know, especially, you know, when it started, you know, the ideas, the the sort of basic idea, which is that at, at the early stages, which is that you sort of confront things that have happened to you in the past, and you, you and by doing that, you kind of expunge them and and it sounds and like behavior healthier. modification, like psychology. It just sounds like straight yeah, up psychology initially. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think I think that the the thing there were three things that really made it different. One was that. E-meter, which is essentially two tin cans hooked up to this this thing that, you know, oscillates or whatever. And and then, you know, his promise was instead of having to do this for years and years and years, we'll take care of it in a much shorter period, like weeks or, or possibly months through auditing. And, and then the third thing is it's not just like going back to when you were three or four or two or, or even at birth. But it's these lives that you've lived as a Thetan going back, you know, billions of years since when you were dropped into a volcano that was then blown up with hydrogen bombs and, you know, you and other Thetans went into people's bodies and and all this. So so I think once you – you know, there's a progression that you go through where you go through from what seems like a fairly normal – psychological process of taking a look at your life and, and kind of dealing with some with issues that you've had in the past 
And then it just keeps, you know, step by step. Let's go into past lives. Let's go into much further past lives. And the way this all works is because it's Thetans and, and then blah, blah, blah. And then, and then suddenly you get to – you're an OT3. You go into this room and you open up a, a briefcase. And I think, you know, what Paul Haggis said is, you know – you know, what the hell is this? No, he said, what the fuck is this? Yeah, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking my daughter might listen to this. Oh, sometime. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. that's fine. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I think at that point, you know, you're, you're so you're, – you've bought into it, you know, both sort of uh, mentally but also, you know, you, you really – you've paid tons and tons of money to get to this point. Now it turns out to be kind of kind of batshit when you get to this because you, you've invested point. and you've basically wasted your investment. Yeah, although I, you know, and, and I don't want to, uh, I know I'm kind of going on a little bit, but I, I don't want to discount. Like I think there are probably people who have benefited from the first part in that. You know, again, it, well, it like Travolta, tracks, he looked. Yeah. At, he he booked all those gigs because he felt so good about himself. Right, it tracks with psychology, and it probably does give you the sense of like. You know, I'm on top of the world. I know all this stuff that other people don't know. Uh, I feel very powerful. Uh, but then again, you you go from there to, you know, being an operating Thetan and going clear and Zenu and volcanoes and hundred foot people, and it's all just very strange. So basically, you're saying just go in for a few months and then get out. We get it. Okay, that sounds like a good piece of advice, Toby. Yeah, like thirty thousand dollars <laughs> later. Okay, you know what? You sound a little bit like a suppressive person right now. Uh, t- uh, Laura, do you do you think you're a suppressive person? Are you an SP? Uh, I'm sure I've been identified by now as an SP. Yes. I'm 100% sure that I'm an SP. What about you, Kevin? I guess I'm SP. I, one thing that really struck me when Kevin and I were in Los Angeles a couple of years ago was just the sheer amount of real estate the Scientologists own. It's really, really something to, to behold. If you are planning a trip to Los Angeles, it is worth walking down Hollywood Boulevard, walking past those giant Scientology buildings as Tell your I story. Did. Tell your story. I walked by one. A guy came out wearing an earpiece and sunglasses and asked if I'd like to come inside and learn more about the history of psychiatry in America. I said, no, thank you. I continued to to walk down the street. I saw another huge Scientology building ahead of me. Another guy comes out of the second building, starts walking toward me on the sidewalk as if he's received communication about my having walked by the first one and says, you know, something along the lines of, you know, do you want to come in and, 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 and you know, learn about Scientologists? No, thank you. And he asked a follow-up question, which seemed an awful lot like he'd been in communication with the guy in the other building, which it freaked me out a little bit. It was, you know, it would have been effective, though, if I had had less to do that day, I, I suppose. Um, okay, so let's let's wrap up the Going Clear conversation. If you haven't watched the documentary, even though we've spoiled it, it is still worth watching. It is just one of those. I'd like to wrap up with my favorite segment. I know you're all starting to get used to it, something I like to call the crime of the week. So this week, in a dramatic conclusion to a big teacher cheating scandal of all things in Atlanta, jurors convicted 11 of 12 former educators, testing administrators to racketeering. It's a felony. It carries up to 20 years in prison. We're talking about public school teachers, testing coordinators, administrators convicted of other charges, such as making false statements. We're looking at hard, hard prison time in a scandal that involves manipulating uh, testing scores to make their school look better. I'd like all of you to react to that. What did you think when you heard about this tremendous, tremendous uh, verdict and like the the amount of time that these teachers might be facing? Uh, Laura, your turn. Go. I think this really sheds some light on what's happened to our education system. It's obviously wrong what these teachers did, but you have to look at 
Why did they do this? Why did they feel such pressure to conform and make their students look good? And I think maybe it's going to open a conversation about how we're testing students in this country, why we're testing them that much, and is there another alternative? What about you, Toby? Uh, Public school teachers being sent to prison for hard time for the cheating scandal. Crime of the week. What do you think? Well, I I think it it shows that we've got this kind of crazy uh, approach to these scores, which is schools that struggle with the scores get punished for them when, in fact, you would think that places that struggle probably need more resources. So I think it it puts people in struggling schools, which are are probably – uh, fairly difficult jobs to begin with in this in this position where they're going to have resources taken away if there's not uh, good performance on these high-pressure standardized tests. And I think that's what this leads to. So it's just the high stakes. You know, there's grant money involved. And so the taxpayers have an interest. And you can make an argument that the teachers and administrators, because some of them might be getting bonuses, you know, they have a financial interest in perpetrating this. But I think on appeal, I mean, that they're really going to be redefining the definition of fraud. And I also think that these teachers would probably not be getting hard time if they were all white. Very, very interesting. Well, Kevin, I guess we'll end it there. Do you want to remind listeners, what is your Twitter handle, Kevin Flynn? It's at Kevin P. Flynn. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Anytime, Rebecca. Toby, do you want to let us know what your Twitter handle is so that listeners of our podcast can follow you and tweet with you? You're like Scientologists. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, it's uh, at Toby Ball NH. At Toby Ball SP. Is that what you just said? NH. Oh, okay. No, it sounded okay. sound like SP to me. <laughs> SP. <laughs> Toby, thank you so much for joining us. Laura stole the microphone for me before I could say anything. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Toby. And Laura, your Scientology insights were amazing. I'm 100% sure that you're also an SP. You are also on Twitter, though. What is your handle there? At Laura Bricker. And I'd like it known that it's going to be streamed live on Periscope if they come for me. That's pretty exciting. (laughs) And of course, I'm Rebecca Lavoie. You can find me at Reb Lavoie on Twitter. You can find more about all the crime writers, including links to our books, resources, media at our website. The address is crimewriterson.com. You can also find us on Facebook. So just search for us there. At our website, you can hear all of the episodes we've recorded. Find my email address if you want to send me a note. And yes, chip in a few bucks to keep this podcast coming your way. You can even do it on PayPal. Please leave a review on iTunes if you listen there it makes a huge difference and we totally appreciate it I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is Crime Writers on Serial we will catch you later Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.